Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Okay, welcome back everyone. Episode 8. Um, they're starting to run together for me, and I think that's a good sign. That uh, yeah, I like it. I like it. Today, uh, we have a, a, another special episode in that we are breaking out of Apache Troop and expanding, like we've been hoping to do the whole time to to know everyone's story. Uh, with us today is Jim Anderson. He was in Vietnam from June of '71 to August of '72. Uh, he was with the 192nd Assault Helicopter Company in the 1st Aviation Brigade and also the 120th Assault Helicopter Company, starting out in maintenance platoon and also as a door gunner and a crew chief on the H model Hueys. Uh, right. Thank you for joining us, uh, Sergeant Jim Anderson. Happy to be here. I'm uh, glad to have you. And uh, you're in New Jersey, correct? That is correct, yes. All right. Just did you, uh, did you grow up in Jersey? I did. Yeah, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, and I think one of your other fellows that you uh, that you know very well and have had on your podcast is also from the same town. So he's the one who introduced me to you, Mr. Doc Del Valley, who we always tease when he says, "I was in the flower business." I'm like, why don't you just say you're in the mob? It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We we're grown ups. We can all you know. We get it. I'm Italian. I get it. No. <laughs> um, again, my partner in crime, Dustin Sweet. Uh, that's that's a figure, figurative term. We actually have not committed any crimes that people know of. No. <laughs> uh, but I, I turn it over to you, Dustin. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Vietnam? Okay. Um, when I was in high school, uh, you know, the draft was a big thing. So yeah. uh, after I graduated high school, it was a choice. You know, I, I could either, you know, go to college or, you know, if I didn't, I'd probably be drafted because my number was very low in the, in the lottery. So I knew I'd probably get drafted. And uh, I really didn't have money, you know, to go to college. So I thought I would do a two-year enlistment. They had that as an option, a two-year enlistment. And the benefits from uh, from doing that would, would literally pay for all of your college. The benefits were very good back then. So I did that, and uh, the enlistment was for two years. But then when I got in, um, the, the mindset was if I took another year, I would have uh, the opportunity to pick a school or whatever, um, you know, a, a different trade you know uh, right. if i did that more than likely i was going to fort Polk, louisiana and i'd be 11 bravo and and i thought nah i don't know if i want to do that so i thought aviation kind of sounded pretty you know it sounded nice you know um so i decided to do that well at the time i i didn't know that that was door gunner school <laughs> i just thought it was aviation you know so i went to fort rucker alabama and uh, I think in the formation, the sergeant at the time, it was like the first day over there, they, they said, uh, 
there's probably about 60 of us there. And they said, everybody here upon graduation from this class is going to Vietnam unless you're 17. And if you try to flunk out of this course, you're still going to Vietnam, but then you'd go as 11 Bravo and in infantry. So I was fine with all of that. And uh, so I finished the course and, uh, and uh, sure enough, I got orders for Vietnam. And at the time, you don't know re really where you're going. You just know you're going to Vietnam. So, so I departed from Fort Lewis, Washington. I had to get all the inoculations and I got sick from one of them. So they had to keep me there an extra couple of days until the sickness, I guess, went away. And uh, so when we arrived in, in Cameron Bay, we were in a final descent in, into the runway at uh, Cameron Bay. And then all of a sudden the pilot pulls up and takes off and comes back and says, sorry, gentlemen, we can't land because the airfield just got hit. So he says, we have an option. We can go to Saigon and sit on the ground and wait, or we can take you to Hong Kong. So here's 250 guys on the plane. Everybody's yelling out Hong Kong, Hong Kong. So we went to Hong Kong and we actually got to sit there for about nine or 10 hours. They let us out of the plane and, uh, and then we went back, and uh, and now the second time we couldn't land uh, in Cameron Bay, so they took us to Saigon, but we had to sit in the plane for like eight hours, you know. And then after that, they we finally got back to Cameron Bay, and uh, then you're in the the replacement battalion, so you still don't know where you're going. It was scary. I heard noises in the background, you know. Um, I don't I don't know if they were incoming or whatever they were, but it was scary. Um, the cockroaches would fly around and land on your, whatever you were reading, they were huge, you know, so I'm sitting to myself saying, what, what did I get into here? <laughs> so finally, after about two days, I got my orders for the 192nd Assault Helicopter Company in a place called Dongbatin. Uh, Dongbatin was uh, just south of Pleiku and, uh, west of Cameron Bay, you know, like if you drew that, that coordinates, it'd right. be, you know, so, uh, so there I, you know, um, they, I went into a maintenance platoon, so I didn't really fly as a gunner at that time, uh, pretty much in the maintenance platoon, uh, which I really found helpful, um, when I started to fly later, because it really gave me a, a uh, good knowledge, good working knowledge of mechanical mechanical ability of, of the of the, the Huey. And uh, I mean, we changed a lot of rotor blades and tail rotor blades, and you know, uh, short shafts, transmissions, a uh, lot of hydraulic servos and stuff like that. Which, you know, when you're flying and if you have a problem, it, it certainly helps you if you kind of know what you're doing. Right. So. And I kind of always had a mechanical ability, so it, everything seemed to come natural to me. Nice. Um, I did fly a few missions with, with the 192nd. Uh, I flew with uh, the God Squad, which was Sundays taking the chaplain out into the field, and they do services and stuff like that, and, uh, and a couple of resupply missions. But primarily, I didn't fly on, a, on an everyday basis, not until I got to the 120th. So I remember Christmas of... Uh, you know, 91, I mean, uh, 71. Um, and I think it was right after that, 
that I got transferred to the 120th. When I was there, I, I was a crew chief. Nine is a door gunner first uh, for about two months, and then I then I crewed the ship. So worked every day. Uh, had various types of missions. You know, not no two were the same. You know, one day you'd be doing resupply missions to U.S. troops. Maybe it was a mail run. Maybe it was delivering sea rats or or uh, ammunition or something like that. Uh, another day might be uh, resupplying to Arvin troops. We did a lot of that. It was a few times we even worked with the Australians. So every day was was different. We flew to different locations every day. Usually when I talk to other vets and they tell me where they were stationed, I'm, I usually reply with, yep, I've been there, you know. So just gone to a lot of different places. Um, some of the missions were we referred to them as Charlie three missions. They were missions where you could expect to be, have some kind of engagement that there was, uh, you were going to enter into hostile territory, but even on all the other missions, I think the biggest fear that a, a crew chief has in a gunner in a, probably didn't bother me too much when I first, when I still had eight months left to go because I, you know, I think a lot of guys, you know, you you just knock on wood and say to yourself, well, maybe someday I'll go home, you know. Right. So every day for me, there was a fear, a fear of, will I get shot? You know, will, will we get hit? You know, will we go down? You know, so you always had that fear. Um, more so when I started to get into that 90-day short-timer time period and you start really thinking about it and you don't necessarily want to volunteer for uh, for charlie three missions you know but you kind of more or less had to volunteer because uh, <laughs> if you didn't you didn't sit well with the rest of the guys you know right right get volunteered so, <laughs> so uh, just, just peer pressure right like if you're not yeah. going to volunteer then you're not going to go then we can't trust you yeah and then uh some of the missions that we did, you know, the 120th was a, uh, was a battalion headquarters, you know, so a lot of politicians and, you know, different people, generals and stuff, we would fly them to various missions, uh, various places where they would have conferences. So we, there were numerous times that we flew into Phnom Penh. And uh, one time, I believe, it was Senator Connolly from Texas. He was the guy who was with Kennedy when he was shot. So he was a senator at the time. And I guess they had some kind of conferences at the presidential palace in Phnom Penh. So we made several trips there. And so one of those pictures that I sent you, that was there. And after going there about two or three times, the kids, they, they kind of knew that we were coming and they knew that I was bringing them candy you know, that I would buy at the PX and, you know, so they all would gather around me. So that's why one of those pictures have all those little kids there, you know? And so I enjoyed that. That was, uh, that was a good time. Um, the old dog and pony show. <laughs> yeah. Now the, the one twentieth was located, um, just, it was, it, it was in long bend. So it was just, uh, I would, it was, it was east of where the Apache Blue were, um, right. but many times we flew in, in that, you know, three core area, um, 
the mountain Nui Baden was a was a, a big mountain close to where uh, Apache Blues were. Um, never really did any any work for Apache Blues because they had their own helicopters. So so we really pretty much supported everybody else, you know. Right. Um, you know. So uh, I don't know. Just ask me questions. Yeah, know, well, but, uh, we were talking before. Uh, uh, we were talking about kind of engine maintenance. What, what's what's a crew chief's day like? You, would you mind walking me through that again? Just like because sure. you're you're the you're the last eyes on the machine before before it flies, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do a a pre-flight in the morning. Make sure everything is okay. You take oil sample. You usually do your oil samples in the post-flight at night. Okay. So. In the morning, you check everything to make sure everything is, is uh, you know, functional, ready to fly. You know, you want to make sure that, uh, you know, you do visual inspections of your tail rotor, um, you know, your your short shaft, your drive lines, your transmission. Underneath the helicopter is a round hole, and inside there, it's directly underneath. The, the main shaft and, and the transmission. Right. And in there is all your hydraulics. So all your servos and everything. And they kind of refer to it as the hell hole because when you're in there, it's greasy, it's dirty, you know, things are dripping. So you go right. in there with a flashlight and you check everything. You make sure that fittings are, are secure, that there's no drips, no leaks. Um, make sure that everything's functioning. So that's pretty much, uh, you know, what you do. And um, obviously you make sure you have fuel, you know, That's important. Uh, you make sure you have, you have ammunition, you make sure that uh, your guns are working properly because you never know. Um, right. A lot of times you're in an area where, you know, we didn't, we didn't even have to, I mean, there were times where I would go a week or two without, without ever firing a bullet, you know, but then sometimes you never know. You'd be in an area where you think it's it's going to be peaceful and calm, and when you're at 2,500 feet and somebody shoots an AK-47 at you, you hear it. At 2,500 feet with the rotor blade and everything else, you hear it. You know, you can actually hear it. And if it hits, if it hits the if it hits the tail boom or something like that, it sounds. I don't know how to describe it, but you can hear it. You know, with your helmet on and everything, you can. You know, so you know. And uh, I was telling Rich uh, one time, uh, one of the the uh, the the bubble underneath the rotor pedals. We thought that one of the pilot, the pilot, I think it was the Peter pilot at the time, it went through on the right side, and we thought it was a ram, but it was a rock. So we kind of think somebody. Uh, shot a, a slingshot, you know, and it was a rock that penetrated. But, you know, at, I don't know, maybe we're doing 75 knots forward airspeed and you get hit with a rock, it's going to, it's going to penetrate that, that uh, plexiglass, uh, you know, yeah. housing. That's a, so, that's a hell of a shot though. I mean, <laughs> it's had to be a luck or something. I mean, I can't imagine anything other than a slingshot. I mean, it, you know, we were we were low level. I was probably just treetop height. But you know, if you're doing seventy knots or eighty knots, you know, it's like hundred mile an hour. You know, somebody shoots that. It's just a luck shot. You know, but yeah, it's kind of scary. 
those slingshots well, they, i mean they have that problem on the southern border with the border patrol people are like oh they're just throwing rocks I'm like, um, they're huge rocks and slingshots and they're you know they take out trucks with rocks yeah. uh, imagine being that guy though who's like i almost took down a helicopter with a rock <laughs> I, know. I know so there were a lot of you know so that was the course of a day you know we would fly out maybe um let's say it was a uh, you know a resupply or something like that that we would uh in times that we would resupply armed troops we we brought out you know sacks of rice and things food that they eat and uh a lot of times we would stay there for an hour two hours you know we no normally have to refuel uh we'd shoot the breeze with some of those guys they were nice guys and uh and then sometimes uh you know, U.S. troops, you know, um, you know, signal units and different different places. Um, we'd stay for a while, you know. And uh, there used to be a, a, a base, uh, a, you know, a, 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 an Air Force base in Vongtau. Uh, and we used to love to go there because we would stay there for several hours. They had a beach, you know, oh, so cool. so. You know, that's why I say you're flying in a in a in a flight platoon. You you know you had there were there were there were benefits. You know, I mean, it, you, you would go to areas where you know in the South China Sea where you could take a swim. You know, uh, you know, so each day was different. You know, um, but uh, you know, then uh, there were times also that uh, that didn't provide a lot of good memories, you know, um, you know, maybe having to fly somewhere into a landing zone and, uh, you know, pick up body bags, which was not, not a fun thing to do. And I think that the, the thing that, that really affected me a lot was pulling into a landing zone and knowing that you're going to have to walk to that perimeter or run or whatever to that perimeter. And you knew you were going to pick up body bag and you know you bring them back and while you're carrying them over your shoulder you could feel that it's it's not it's in it's in like a piece you know with pieces yeah. you know it might not even be a whole body and i think the hardest part was when we flew out of there and, and i'm sitting there and you know i'm thinking this is this is somebody's son or maybe somebody's you know somebody's father, you know, or a husband. And, you know, if I dwelled on that too much, it was very sad, you know, didn't really get to see anything. You know, we just would take these to the, you know, to the back to the headquarter or wherever, you know, wherever, wherever they were going to be taken to. So that was not a fun thing, you know, um, I was sad. Uh, and then just things like that, uh, was okay you know i mean i you know you dealt with you dealt with what was you know um you know it's uh i had a there was just a lot of times that were good times you know so they they overshadowed some of the bad times but you know yeah and i think like you're saying you know you can look at it from the abstract you know like okay i did this thing and i went and picked up you know these bodies and I just did what I was supposed to do, but you know, deep down we're all human beings and you know, 
like you know what that means um i know that some people want to i know it's in vogue right now to kind of make fun of the drone pilots who you know are sitting in their office in virginia or whatever piloting the drones and how there should be medals for them it's like well yeah they're in their office but deep down those drone pilots know what they're doing like when when they drop something on a on a building um and, and as a human being you still have to to kind of reckon with that um I, I do have a question that's been burning in me, you know, for, for you as a door gunner, um, you know, we talked to the blues and how they'd be running back to the helicopter and those tracer rounds are going right over their shoulder. And, you know, the tracers, what, every fifth round. Yeah. Um, yes. So like for everyone that went over their shoulder, they know four more went, um, you know, the M sixties aren't exactly sniper rifles and they don't exactly go on a straight vector, like a laser. Um, true how do you dial that in? Like you've got to do a close quarter, but you don't have full control. Um, but you know, how, how do you control that to not hit your guys as they're sprinting? Well, usually you knew, like if you pulled into an landing zone, if you're going to pick them up, that's why for me, the, the, the fear, you know, of, of wondering whether or not I was going to get killed would only last for 15 minutes. You know, people like Rich had to deal with that for hours at a time. And, and I saw what they went through. And, and I thank God that, you know, a lot of people said to me when I, after I came home, how could you be a door gunner? My goodness, that's gotta be the worst thing in the world. It's not, believe me. The, the Apache Blues and people like that, those are the people that, you know, many didn't come home. You know, uh, I think when I was there, maybe if you go back into the late 60s, a lot of helicopters went down. A lot of, a lot of crew members were killed. Not as many as, as when I was there. I mean, they still were, were issues, but now I just forgot my train of thought. Where were we? Oh, controlling, controlling, quote unquote, controlling oh, yes. the recoil on a 60s. Yeah, if we, if we pull into a landing zone, and we were going to pick up some troops. We kind of knew where they were. So many times, uh, many times the North Vietnamese, if they were in the area and then we landed like two helicopters or maybe maybe we landed or, or two Huey models and maybe there was a, a C model gunship running circling around up above a lot of times they didn't they didn't fire at you because they don't want to give away the position because we would light it up you know and there were times where i didn't even know but i knew that who we were picking up were over there so i knew there was no one over there and you would just light it up you know you yep. just just light it up so you don't know if there was anybody there or not but uh, you wanted to just do that because these guys were going to either run out to you. And then sometimes I had to actually leave the helicopter because I had to go and help to maybe carry somebody because they, they got hit. Their leg was, you know, they could walk or they were limping. So they needed the help. So a lot of times we did stuff like that, but uh, you know, so uh, that's pretty much how, you know, you didn't you didn't just pull into a landing zone and, and 
looking around, wondering where they were coming from. You knew exactly where they were. Either they, either they put up a, you know, a, a you know, a, a flare or something like that ahead of time, or you knew the coordinates. I didn't know personally, but the pilot did. You know, they had communication, so they knew exactly the location where they were. Um, and uh, so. Um, and again, sometimes like every day you, you had to wonder whether or not, you know, I mean, sometimes you didn't even think about it. You know, you just, one time we had to fly out into the central Highland section to a, a mountain yard unit, a, a, you know, a place where the, the, these, uh, nomadic type of, uh, Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, uh, you know, we'd pull in there and, and they're primitive, you know, they had loincloths. The, the women would walk with, you know, pots on their head, you know, carrying stuff and a lot of little kids. And I don't, I don't have a clue why we were there. You know, we just had to go there. I don't know if it was to pick, I can't even remember if we picked anybody up or we dropped something off, but I can remember we used to have in a gun rack, you know, or, you know, next to where your gun rack was a pole there. And we used to have like a screwdriver, which was like a number one Phillips screwdriver, which we used to use that if, if a round was, you know, if you had a jam in your M60, so you could use it to kind of just free out the jam. And so I can remember when we flew into that place, these, these uh, mountain yards, they just, they wanted to get out of the area, you know, so they're, they're, tr they're rushing you. They're trying to like women, you know, you know, mama sons and, and young kids, they're trying to get on the helicopter because they want to get out of the area. And, you know, the pilot would say, you can't let them on. You can't let them on. So, you know, what are you going to do? So I, I, I have take the, the Phillips screwdriver and you just kind of not hurt them, but just bop them on the head, you know, <laughs> because you couldn't let them in, you know, gentle you know otherwise they, you know, so, you know, that was a, that was a sad thing, you know, because I felt bad for them, you know, and I think right before we went in there, some, we followed some cobras in there and the cobras went in and just, you know, lit up that whole area. So we went in there and I, I think we, we dropped off some supplies or something. I don't even know if there was any U.S. troops there or not. I don't know. We weren't there long. We were there 10 minutes, you know, yeah. so, in and so out. that's the kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, it, I mean, it is, I think for people who, you know, you can read about Vietnam in the history books, you can watch the old newsreels, but you don't get a sense of the day-to-day -day, um, yeah. of every, uh, all the little things that happened there. I, I do have to ask, did you ever go down um, an unplanned landing, so to say, or? or... Yeah, yeah, once. Um, we got hit in the tail rotor. So we lost the tail rotor. So you can still fly as long as you fly straight and level at, I think it's like 80 knots. You got to fly somewhere around there, 70 knots to keep forward airspeed. So we, we lost the tail rotor. So we had to go down. So we actually landed on a beach, you know, did a skid landing on a beach. You know, we were far from where we got hit. So I wasn't afraid that, you know, you know, we were still able to fly away from that area. Um, 
I'm going to guess and say it was maybe 30 kilometers away, you know, because we weren't that far from the coast. I think it was near Natrang. So we landed, uh, did like a skid landing, kind of flattened out the skids a little bit, but it was, it was good, you know, and, um, and then another time we had an engine problem, but we were able to auto rotate and land. Okay. And then once after we landed, the, the, uh, actually caught fire so so they had put they had brought in chinooks to to you know to lift it and bring it back to the company and uh so i i just took pictures of you know they put the fire out and i was standing on the rotor blade on one of the rotor blades i walked out just like it was a photo opportunity you know? <laughs> but you know but uh, other than that you know, I thank God I didn't, I never got hit, you know, um, some of the guys that I were with did, you know, and guys that if we had troops in there that got hit, I think Rich always used to tell me he used to like to sit behind the pilot seat because, because there was, uh, you know, partitions there that were bulletproof, you know, so it was a safer place to sit, you know, um, which is true, you know. Yeah, everyone seemed to have their favorite place. Uh, Doc, yeah. like there for the the partition. Other guys were like, "I wanted to be on the outside so you can jump out quicker." Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I wore a flak jacket. Sometimes I didn't. Um, sometimes I I buried myself in that that well, you know, just kind of sat in there. And then other times I stood out on the skid, you know, and uh, you know you have a chicken strap on, so. You know, just knowing that's there, you, you don't really have any fear. You could be 3,000 feet and stand out on the skid while you're doing forward airspeed, you know. Plus um, you're 20, 21, and they're all invincible. Anyway. I, just have, I have so many stories. There was one time we were flying. I don't know where we were, but uh, the gunner, you know, looked out his, his side, and he saw, a, you know, a C-130. It was like at the same altitude we were heading right at us. You know, so the pilot, he says, the pilot, look out the right, look out the right, look out the right. And sure enough, he had to order rotate. And if we didn't see that, I had no clue whether or not that C-130 wow. would have hit us. But that was kind of a scary thing, you know. So a bigger bird has the right away, right? <laughs> yeah. And then some, when we used to go to Cambodia, to Phnom Penh, we, uh, there were some times that we did, while we were waiting, you know, for these uh dignitaries that were having uh, conferences and stuff we we actually did some things for the for the uh the cambodian troops and one time we we had we took up their airborne troops and took them up to like 9500 10000 feet and they would free fall and wow. they were they were girls and i have pictures of that you know the they're you know young girls that were airborne so it was pretty neat you know, flying at 10,000 feet, cold, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you could breathe okay at 10,000 feet, but it was right. very cold. That's like the ceiling, right? After that, you need oxygen. Uh, no, I, I think you could probably go higher. I remember, I, I don't really know the exact height, but um, breathing-wise, I don't know about, I mean, these are turbine engines that they right. need a lot of air, so I don't know. I don't know what that what that that is. I know. I mean, you know, if you go to Pikes Peak, that's fourteen thousand feet. You can breathe up there. Yeah. Not good, but, you know. But uh, 
Hey, come on, Dustin. You live in Taos. So you're nah, already- I know. I'm already I'm already at seven and a half. I was at I was at eleven uh, two days ago. So eleven thousand feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got okay. uh, I got a thirteen five right out the back door. So um, I know you can. I remember. You know, I I can remember being thirteen thousand feet. You know, when I went to uh, when I went to Pikes Peak, but and you can breathe up there. But I I know it was like. You know, yeah, you it's, walk, it's a walk, workout, man. Yeah, yeah, if you walked a hundred feet, it felt like you walked a half a mile. You know? Yeah, it, there's a there's a trail here that's like a I don't know like a three mile round trip. You go up to a lake and then come back down. And do you live Do you live in Colorado? I'm in Taos, New Mexico, northern New Mexico, just okay. uh, just south okay. of that same mountain range. And right. uh, it's a workout. I'm here at sea level, so <laughs> every time I visit Dave, I'm kind of invincible for like three days. <laughs> You're in <laughs> Seattle, right? Yeah. Yeah. Occupied Seattle. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a tough situation to deal with. Yeah. A lot of, uh, I've talked to a lot of dads from school and people are like, you know, Spokane doesn't look that bad or uh, <laughs> we've already lost $2 billion companies in the last week. So going to have to time this market and get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, man, yeah. now is the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you you went to high school with doc correct i did yeah All yeah right. we were pretty good friends and the funny thing is i didn't know i didn't know he was in apache blues until probably a year ago oh wow all these years i you know I, it's like you know you, you kind of lose touch with high school people after after high school you know um and when i got back you know well that you know we'll get into that but um well we can go yeah, let's let's do it how, how did you get back you took okay. the you took the extra six month tour yeah, and- we pulled out um you know we pulled out uh i think we had like maybe a two-week notice that the unit was pulling out okay. and so i got my orders to go to report to fort hood texas which i really wasn't happy about so i had requested if there's any way I could be closer to home, you know, to New Jersey. I was a little disappointed because I thought I was going to be able to ETS and right. get out, but I had to do almost another year. So they did, they did uh, change the location and they, uh, and I went to, to Fort Benning. So little. still a thousand miles, but it was better than, than Texas. Right. You know, so I went to Fort Benning and uh, for the whole time I was there, I didn't even have a job. I, I did nothing. You know, they had a they had an airfield, but they had no helicopters. <laughs> you know, so I actually went to flight school. Um, you know, and uh, and I certified. I flew a Cessna. You know, a civilian flight school. Right. I flew a Cessna one seventy two, and I certified. You know, I thought maybe I'd be a pilot. You know, for a living. You know, but. I had met my wife uh, when I came home, and uh, she made several trips down. I came home a few times. We fell in love. I decided I'm not going to stay in the military. I'm going to get out. Um, I wasn't even there a year because they had a program where I could take a 90-day early out if I served one year in the National Guard. So I did that so that I could get out. And, uh, and, uh, 
when I left Vietnam, I, you know, I flew from uh, Tansanut in Saigon. And I remember, I can't remember what airline it was. But as soon as we took off, I remember feeling a sigh of relief when I knew that we were at least 10 miles offshore. You know, I was like, first time that I'm feeling relief, knowing that I'm really going home. And uh, so we landed at Oakland Air Force Base. And at that time, I, it was a long flight. I think we landed, it was like 7.30 at night. I did not want to fly another six hours, you know, to New Jersey. So I decided I was going to stay overnight in a hotel. In so Oakland. I did that. How'd that go? Yeah, in Oakland. In Oakland. I, sent, I went to the hotel. I, did, I just got some snacks, went up to the room. And I remember I sat in the bathtub for about two hours because it was the first time I was able to take a bath. You know, I mean, normally your showers in Vietnam were a pull string. And uh, I got stories about that, you know, you know, you go to take a shower and there's no water left in the tower. And, you know, you're just trying to, you know, that kind of stuff. But so, so I did that. And, uh, and I remember I did go down to the bar and, uh, and I remember talking to somebody at the bar that, yeah, I just got home from Vietnam and, you know, small talk conversation, nothing, nothing. It just felt weird. It, everything smelled different, you know, like Vietnam has a certain smell. So now when you, when you got back to the United States, it had, a, it had a great smell. You know, I just remember the, the difference in the smell of the air. Even in a bar, it was a great smell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just, you know, you knew you weren't, you know, in Vietnam, you know, and uh, it was kind of a weird feeling coming home but worse when i even got back to new jersey um my high school class was 750 kids i had a lot of friends and when i came home you know that arrival at newark airport you know we had to wear our uniform it was summer it was warm out so we had our khaki uniforms on and uh, and it, my mother picked me up, and I can remember walking down the corridor, and there were protesters, and you know, although they didn't say anything to me, it was uh, the look on their face. It was just a, it was certainly not a welcome home, you know. And I, I not that I, I wasn't even expecting any kind of welcome home, but I didn't expect to see that, you know. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I knew where they were at. I was on the same page as them at one time. I mean, I'm, I'm a Woodstock survivor. Before Vietnam, I went to Woodstock, you know. So, you know, and I had hair down here and, and so did Rich. You know, I mean, we were, you know, so. Wait, do you have a picture of Rich with hair down to his shoulders? No, I don't think so. We're gonna uh, need that if you but he had that. long hair. I mean, I think we all had long hair back then. But, but uh, you know, so getting home and you know, a lot of my friends and stuff they knew I was home, and I, you know, it just felt really weird. 
you know, especially seeing guys that I grew up with, I felt like I was 10 years older, mm. you know, and, and it was, you know, most close friends that you were with in high school, you know, they're going to ask you the stupid questions that you just can't answer, you know, and, and the obvious questions are, did you kill anybody? You know, you're always going to get that. And, you know, and how do you answer a question like that? So, you know, I said, look, you know, if you're, if you're asking me if I put notches on my rifle butt, no, I didn't. But my job was a helicopter crew chief and a door gunner. You know, and I'll leave it at that, you know. I mean, what I'm talking about with you, I have never talked with anybody in, in this kind of detail, not even my wife. Some things that we're talking about, I've talked with my wife. But for the, and with people like Rich, no problem, you know. Because other vets understand, other Vietnam vets understand the, you know, the everyday life in Vietnam. Other people don't, you know. So, and I think like today's vets that come home, you know, it's got to be wonderful for them to have people clap, you know, or, you know, that's got to feel good but they feel the same thing I do, the same thing Rich does. They feel the same thing, like they're, they're thanking God that they're home. Now, some of them might not have had, you know, rough positions, but I mean, even in Vietnam, people that were, were an administrative or cooks or whatever, they still had to deal with whether or not there was gonna be some kind of incoming round coming in. They still had to live with that fear. You know, some were more than others, but it's always there so these guys that are in you know in war today you know it's tough you know um i can't imagine what it's like today for those guys you know with vietnam you had jungle you know you had it was different you know but yeah like coming home was was a tough was a tough thing you know and and it still is you know i tried joining the vfw I think after going there three times, you know, that was not for me. You know, it's just a bunch of guys that I think half of the stories that they told were bullshit, you know. And uh, when I got back, I did utilize uh, the benefits for college. I did go to college for six years. And um, I went to Ramapo College. Uh, First, I went to Bergen Community College, and then I transferred to Ramapo College. So, you know, that's in the northern part of New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. The state school. Yeah, you, you earn those benefits. Make sure yeah, you... I did. I actually made money on the deal because I can't remember what the tuition cost, but it was a state college and I had gotten married, you know, shortly after I got, got back and uh, we had children right away. So I was getting benefits for being married with two children. And then if I, if I took courses in the summer semester, which was only like six weeks, the pay would, would come all the way through every month. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, that, that gap in between the end of one semester and the start of another, if you you went the summer semester, that's six weeks, you got paid for those two gaps. You didn't lose any money. So I actually made more money than, than the adjunct professor got to teach the course, you know? Nice. And uh, so Uh, that's, well, I can remember it was great. It paid for our groceries. It did all that while I was, you know, building a career, you know. 
Well, and yeah. I love, you know, recruiters to be like, oh, you know, sign up, you get free college, you know, free this. I'm like, uh, nothing's free. Nothing's free. Like, you earn but, that. <laughs> but I know the benefits were really, really good. I'm, I'm going to guess and say it was about $490 a month that I got, something like that. And this is going back into like 73, you know, and the That's tuition cool. in many cases was was equal to, I mean, there were sometimes, I mean, the reason it took me six years is because there were, there were semesters I only took six credits. So when, when that happened, maybe the tuition was only $500 and here I was getting paid $500 a month, you know, yeah. so I made money on the deal, you know, and like everybody else, I was bought used textbooks, you know, sold yep. back at the end, you know, but yeah. yeah, that, that's, that's a commonality still today. Like yeah. Yeah. some things don't change, man. <laughs> I know. But all in all, uh, you know, it's uh, it changed my life. I think it it made me a better person. I think uh, just uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm a man of faith. I have a lot of faith, and you know, I, I live by I live by what I believe. You know, and uh, and I think Vietnam did a lot of that. Changed a lot of that. Uh, I had a lot of uh, issues coming home with uh, memory, um, you know, and alcohol, you know, which I would have a lot of flashback and waking up in the middle of the night and doing crazy things that I can't even remember doing, you know, everything from mistaking a closet for a, a bathroom, you know, because in Vietnam, when you had to do, you just opened your hooch door and went right inside the door, you know, yeah. you know, so I can just remember stuff like that, you know, uh, you know, because I think, uh, you know, after spending a year there, you know, and then coming home, it's, it's hard to, to adjust to that, you know, I did. Okay. I can't really say that I suffered you know, from any, you know, any long-term, you know, issues, because um, I accept what it, what, what is, but in 50 years, have I ever forgotten? No, no. I can't say I have thoughts every day, but probably every other day, you know, some kind of thought, you know, and of course with, with the internet, you know, things, you know, you have a lot more opportunity. I'm going to my reunion this year. I never did the 192nd reunion. Uh, there's only two other guys in the reunion that go to the reunion that, that were in the unit the same time I was. But the 192nd's been in Vietnam for probably a dozen years. So there's a lot of guys from other years and I always thought the reunion was, well, you know, I'm, I don't know anybody, but they, the guys that I, I do know, they tell me it's like a big happy family and you definitely should go. So we are going, it's going to be in, uh, in October in uh, Columbus, South Carolina. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I've been lucky right enough to get involved, invited to a couple of Apache troop reunions and man, those guys, the, you said it correctly, man, they fall in like a family right away. Uh, guys that didn't, know each other at the same time or 
or serve at the same time and that they're just like family it's it's crazy to watch them just all get together i think the one one thing that you know in talking with rich and and uh when he was in his unit he was with the same guys every day right. so he knew them all first name last name what town they from for me I mean, I knew other people in the flight platoon, but I wasn't with them every day, only at night. And a lot of times at night, when I got back, I was pooped. I knew I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning. By the time I got back to the hooch, it was like, I wanted to take a shower and, you know, go to bed, you know? So didn't really socialize a whole lot. So, and everybody, and, and most people that, that have been in Vietnam, they'll all say that everybody had nicknames. Nobody knew me as Jim Anderson. I was known as Andy, you know, because of the last name, right. you know, so like I'm, and many people thought that that was my name, Andy. And then they said, when I said Anderson, they said, that's your name, Andy Anderson. I'd say, no, no, it's Jim, you know, and, you know, so guys I served with, I know them by their last, I know them by their, their nickname, Smiley. And uh, so I know some of the guys and uh, by their first and last name, but I can't find them. You know, I mean, I've tried on Facebook. I can't find them. I don't know where they are. Um, but most of the guys that I know, I know by nickname. And that doesn't help you find them, you know. No, Although especially did, everybody hates their own nickname, right? So. <laughs> yeah. But, but I did find the two that were on the 192nd because they've got a beautiful website. Just like Apache Blue, they got a great website. Um, you know, the 120th has a website, but it's not not that great. You know, I mean, it's. There's a lot of members, but nobody, there's no, no one's planning any reunions or anything, you know, but, but what's good about the 120th is, you know, I, you know, there was some girl, I guess, who posted it. I don't know where she got it, but they were orders, you know, for your medals, you know, I mean, I've got medals and I've got the unit citations and I've got the actual medals and the, and the certificates and everything, but I didn't have the actual orders. So she posted them online and those orders, I was on those orders. So oh, cool. it was nice to get a copy of that, see that after, you know, 50 years, because I didn't save the actual orders, you know, so now I have, you know, so. And I think what you'll notice about the reunion is it's really good for the spouses as well. A lot of the yes. wives have really, you know, it, it, it allows them kind of a window in um, yeah. to see all of all of the veterans get back together. Um, and I'm not going to take credit <clears throat> credit for this phrase because it was Norma Rojas, one of the wives who we met at the first reunion. I had no idea that was Danny and Norma was her first their first reunion that they've been to just Danny fell in but Norma called it the, the table of healing. Um, because mm -hmm. people will just kind of congregate in the lobby or we we're in DC and there was a, like a courtyard an interior courtyard and people will just sit out there talking till you know midnight 1am um just shooting the breeze and it was really you know a nice thing and and really nice for the wives as well to to get yeah. that window in i look forward to it i'm hoping my wife will be okay I and mean, she's got stage four lung cancer but she's doing all right you know so um you know she's on this immunotherapy drug which is you know helping kind of making her live you know so she should yeah. be okay you know oh. 
Dustin decided uh, the, the internet in Taos is terrible. So uh, looks like he just okay. got booted. Uh, but I did actually want to ask you in your email, you mentioned that you meet a lot of people who say they were in Vietnam, but you can tell right away. Um, Craig Jorgensen, one of our veterans, calls it the 20 questions. Um, you know, oh, where were you? What unit? Um, you you have Usually come 60, 60 seconds. Yeah. You know, or maybe two minutes. You know, it's really easy to discern, you know, just by the way people, like if you ask a question that you know every single veteran would know. Yeah, and if they don't know that answer, if they don't lay it lay it out right away, they weren't there. You know? Oh yeah, I was. We were at um. Uh, Dustin and I lived in L.A. for about three months, um, trying to make connections, and we went to some industry party. And there's a guy behind. You know, you're sitting standing in line, and everyone's shooting the breeze. And this guy behind was saying he was a law enforcement consultant. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, like I was in law enforcement. Let's talk. And like five seconds in, I knew he was lying. And it, it went from let's talk to, do I want to make a scene? <laughs> like, um, but do you, you know, having, when you're talking about coming home and walking by the protesters and just the, the stares that you got to, it seems like now it seems cool to say you were in Vietnam. Is that a weird kind of cross section or dichotomy for you to, to see the, the kind of the warm turn like that? I think when I came home, you really didn't want to tell people you were in Vietnam. The, the people that I were friends with, I mean, there were times, there were times that I, I almost wish I was back there. It's a common thing that we hear actually. Because because you feel like there's things that that were not completed and you knew that there were still troops there and you feel like you want to be part of it you know i mean before i went to vietnam i was against the war and the the whole time i was there if somebody said do you think we should be here i would said probably not but that's that's not the answer right now i'm here yeah you know and and when you come back the answer is i was there you know and and i always remember my dad you know who was a highly decorated world war ii uh veteran he always said to me the typical things that fathers from World War II era would say, the military will make a man out of you. You know, many dads have said that to, to their sons. And then some of them said it like, but my, my dad always said it like, you know, it'll, it'll make a man out of you. And I, I didn't know what that meant. But what it meant when I came home was for one, I aged 10 years. I had much better, you know, just handle on reality, things that are happening, you know. I actually, when I was in Fort Benning, I, I thought I was like going crazy. So I talked to the company commander and he says, well, why don't you, you know, talk to somebody? He said, I'll set it up for you. So he did. So I went to a psychiatrist 
And I had two meetings with him. And I realized I don't need this. It's just what I felt was growing up. You know, I think even if you if you if you don't go to Vietnam, there's a type in your time in your life where you realize you're no longer a kid. You know. Yeah. And I think that that happened, you know, I just, I aged, you know, so I was like, I think when you're in high school, I, I didn't, I never knew what the term depression, I never felt that, you know, but then yeah. coming home, you feel that. And I never knew what that was, you know, but I think after talking to somebody just one or two times that it was, it just made me realize, okay, I'm, I'm okay. You know, yeah, and, it's uh, you know we talked to um, a psychiatrist as part of the movie who worked at Walter Reed, and he was a Vietnam veteran, and he well he hates the term PTSD, like everything about. I mean, it's a real. He knows it's a thing, but he just hates the way it's been labeled. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's and what he really hates is the D, the disorder. He's like, it's not a disorder; it's just a different life experience. Right. Um, yeah, you aged and you just had a different life experience than the people who were around. But when you're in a group of 20 and 19 didn't go to the war, it can make you feel like maybe there's something different about me. Well, there's something different. You went to war and and they didn't. Um, and that's the the gap that we're trying to bridge from the other side, though, because the other 19 people can feel like, well, we're all the same. It's like, no, you need to recognize this. Um, and I think that is starting to see, I see people call it PTS a lot more now. Um, but that's, that's what we're trying to bridge. Like, you guys I know, were... I know that there were people that came home around the same time I did and for many years struggled. Um, many of them started doing some pretty heavy drugs, you know? That's never been my thing, you know. I struggled a little bit with alcohol, you know, and of course, when I was in Vietnam, some pot smoking, but drugs were never something for me. But I think for some veterans coming home, the drugs probably made things worse, you know. And many of them struggle even years later. And I, I understand it, you know. I don't, I feel bad, you know but it's because they can't let go of the memories. You know, that they, they, they just, I can stop thinking about that. You know, it's over, you know. I still think about my time there, but I try to focus on the times that I was in Vietnam that were good times. And I did have some very good times. Um, and I know Rich said the same thing. He had times where things were great, you know. So, you know, and Rich seems to have everything together. You know, he came home. What does he do? He's, he sold flowers or something. He worked, yeah. <laughs> he worked in the wholesale flower business. Like, the yeah. Mom. No, <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> wholesale flowers. Got back into yeah. it within a week of getting home. Just back to yeah. work. And so that's funny. what, so that's what people are seeing, though, when you get involved, in, absorbed in work. Like, it's putting it off. And I think that's what the drugs do for people, too. It's like, do you think yeah. it's caring but all it's doing is pushing that off like eventually you got a deal 
two or three weeks ago when we were talking, me and Rich, you know, we talk at night and we were on the phone for like two hours. And, you know, I was saying, yeah, you know, I, I was more friendly with Rich when we were in junior high school, you know. And I remember I said, I, I remember going to your house. You lived on uh, something lawn. And he goes, yeah, East Lawn Drive. I said, yeah. And I, I couldn't believe that I remembered that. You know, I mean, I said, I, I think I went to your house once. Did you have a party or something? How, do I, how did I remember that? I have no idea how I remember that. But that's 55 years ago. And I remember the street he lived on. But we weren't really that close of friends, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know. But we had some good times in, in those years, you know, that that we've been able to recall since we've reconnected. Um, and uh, he's just a great guy, you know, and, and I know that you've met him and didn't you go to his hometown or something? Or? Yeah, we uh, we visited uh, with him in Vero Beach uh, a couple of yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we were thinking we we're gonna do one more big filming trip uh, to see everyone, but COVID kind of put a quash on that, and and so now we're doing just a very short one, and it's too far to to make it to Florida uh, to see him. But uh, when I first back. saw when I first when I first saw the movie that I guess the whatever news station that filmed the the, uh, the, the CBS the, footage, yeah, the 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 shots of of Rich that were in there. The look on his face, I mean, I, I saw the fear on his face. It was the same face I made, you know, and I, when I talked to him, I said, I, I couldn't believe that just look like the fear, the look of fear on his face, but yet he still persevered, still did what he had to do, you know, and I, I was the same, you know, but I, I could see it, you know, pretty amazing. Yeah, his quote is, you know. You just got to do what you got to do. Like someone's down, you're the medic. It was like, you'll think about it later, but you got to do it. Although he did mention that he didn't know what to do because there was a camera in his face. You know, he's trying to uh, yeah. trying yeah. to do what yeah, he, he does. And then there's the camera and that's why he yelled. The he emphasis. said that. He said that. He says, I, don't, I didn't know if I was supposed to talk. <laughs> Yeah, the infamous "give me some cover." It's like I never yeah. said that, but and now he's like, I can't hear the end of it. I'm like, well, yeah. you're never going to. I'll make sure. <laughs> yeah. So it was the same thing with uh, Jack Hughley, the lieutenant, when he yelled, "Make sure you stop the bleeding." He's like, I know that Doc knows to stop the bleeding. That's like the bare minimum of being a medic. You're like, <laughs> stop the bleeding, but there's a camera in my face, and I was like, I, I said something. <laughs> so yeah that's a that's a very definitive day in their lives i think yeah. it's, it's i mean it's millions and millions of views on youtube um, i saw it on a military page on sunday running that so um i think it's a great thing that you're doing um i think it's good for other vets to see it you know uh, i know i feel a lot better now than than i did 20 years ago yeah. and, and that's you know when we first started this we thought we were going to tell a story you know Dustin and I were both born 
after the war. I won't, you know, very, not that far removed from it, but, you know, we kind of like, we don't have a horse in this race. Um, and we started thinking just, you know, why, why this gap, even in the way Vietnam veterans are just, you know, portrayed in pop culture, uh, you know, the, the crazy Vietnam vet trope or, you know, platoon and, and everything else. That's what we thought we were making. Um, but, you know, when you do a documentary, you've, you've got to be open to let the story tell you what it is. And we never thought we would have the reaction we had from, from vets who weren't in Apache troop and, and how they feel that it's their story as well. And, you know, that makes us just really proud, but also very humbled, you know, this, this is technically the office of rainbows and unicorns entertainment that I'm in, but it's, you know, the guest room in my house, like, (laughs) or across from the guest room, like, you know, we're just two guys. So it's, it's, it's been very weird, but we're very proud uh, and happy to do this. So, yeah, uh, I think it's wonderful. I think it's really good. I enjoy it. I've watched, I watched every one of those podcasts that you sent me, you know, and, um, they were good. Thank uh, that you. one warrant officer, that one pilot warrant officer, he was kind of, kind of like, uh, I, I knew guys like him that like, yeah, you know, yeah, I want to go back again, you know, you know, like just no fear, you know, yeah, it just didn't have any fear, you know, it was like, you know, where I, I had fear. I mean, I didn't show it, but you know, I worried about it. I worried about it every day, you know, was it just kind of like, you know, you got to accept, like, if you get hit, you get hit. Like, you can't, you can't sit there and force the bullets away from you. You just kind of got to yeah. go, right? Is that how you would look at it? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were times where, you know, uh, mostly small, small arms, you know, somebody shooting AK-47 or whatever. And we got hit a few times, like, you know, like the fuselage, you get hit. And I always worried about like, cause you know, there's five fuel cells, you know? So if you get hit in a fuel cell, it's okay. It's gonna switch to another one. You're not gonna have a problem. But, you know, it was always scary if you got hit in a tail rotor or, you know, if, you know, if a pilot got hit or something like that, you know? And the biggest fear was, I felt very safe if we were flying at treetop height. Because if you're only 50, 60 feet above the ground, I don't know if you're a hunter, but, you know, trying to shoot a duck, you know, with a 22 would be like almost impossible, you know, he's flying, you know, when you're flying at treetop height and you're doing 80 knots, 70 knots, I mean, a lot of times you can't even hear the helicopter until it gets, you know, you got a, you got a small window, you know. So, the, but the fear was if, if we were flying back from Cambodia and we were flying at 3,500 feet, you know, or 4,000 feet, you had to constantly watch because you were looking for heat seeking missiles, you know, and if you weren't watching, it's going to hit you, you know, if you see it coming at you, you know, you can auto rotate that thing's not, that missile's not going to go like that, you know, yeah. so you drop and it's going to overshoot you. But that was always the fear. Cause if that hits you, you're done, you know, you're done. Yeah. I think you know, movies and, give uh, the, 
movies give the wrong interpretation that the missile will follow you, you know, whatever. I think the technology, the technology today is probably a lot better that, that it can do stuff like that. But, but back in the seventies, it wasn't, I don't think it was that fine tuned, you know? Yeah. Um, And then that's why when I was there, they, what they did was with the exhaust on the Hueys, the, the exhaust port would come straight out the back. Then Bell helicopter came up with a deflector that now it would cause the exhaust to come out and up like on a maybe 50 degree angle with the mindset that the exhaust would hit the rotor blades and the rotor blades would wash the, the heat away, which in theory, it sounds great. The problem with it was when you flew in a helicopter with both doors open, the exhaust would just funnel through and all you'd be wiping your eyes, you know, it would, it was, it was horrible, you know? Yeah. So eventually they, they took that deflector off, you know, because it was, you, the crew just couldn't fly with that on. They were you solving know. one problem and creating a worse one. Creating another. Yeah. 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 But, uh, um, you know, we always do like to ask, well, there's two questions we like to ask. Um, we're looking for the person, you know, talking, talking to the protesters here who thought it was a good idea to protest the troops like it was their fault they were there. Uh, did you, are you the one who declared war on Vietnam? Uh, this was all your idea? Do I have to really answer that question? No, no. I, we just like to drive it home. You know, the, the transference onto the troops. I mean, right. you, you did what you were told. Like, like literally, you were told that you had to do that. Um, but also, we do like to open it up. Um, you know, like you said, it is, it is easier talking veteran to veteran. So for any veterans watching, is there any advice that you have for them? Um, you know, both for Vietnam veterans, because it is never too, both the reunions we've been to have had veterans there for their first time, like you're going to your first reunion, um, but also for the the younger veterans who are coming back today. And, you know, they, they we've talked to some veterans and they're like, we're just trying to learn how to reintegrate. Um, and you guys have all this experience. Like, do you have any advice for for other veterans out there? To the ones that are serving now, when they come home, I would encourage them to to reach out to other veterans, talk about it. You know, uh, I know it's difficult for them to come back, depending on what their jobs were, to come back and just talk to their friends from high school. I, it's hard. That's hard to do, but just um, you know reach out to other, other people, you know, and, um, and, uh, for me, I have a lot of faith. I have a lot of faith in God. So that really changed my life. And I got involved with the local church and, you know, I mean, that might not be for everybody, but, but, uh, you know, you have to look at, at, you know, the past and and focus towards the future and try to let the things that took place strengthen you you know um to the vets that come back 
that are Vietnam vets. We share a bond, you know, that I don't have to know anything about that person, but if I know he's a vet, you know, we just have this bond, you know, we, we know each other and, and I, and I like that, you know, so, um, and I think all vets feel that way. So whether it's me going to the 192nd reunion, or I think if I went to any reunion where there's other vets, I, I, it would be a great experience, you know, um, you know, on Facebook, they have the air metal club, you know, they have the bronze star club. They have Purple Heart Club. I don't have a Purple Heart, but I do have several medals. And uh, they should have reunions for the air medal people, you know, or the, the Bronze Star people, or any medal people, you know. It's just a, a fun thing to do. But somebody's got to be the one to organize that. Like Dustin, what you guys that are doing, what you guys are doing. Nobody in 50 years or have done what you're doing, you know, so it's the same thing with these reunions. Somebody has to organize it. Yeah. And, and like I said, we're just two guys. So if you're out there listening and thinking I couldn't do that again, look at my Lego office and uh, <laughs> I've been worried because my wife is on a zoom call down the hall and she has just eaten someone alive down there. And, and <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing because it's fun not to be on the end of that. She works internal audit. And so I, I know that someone is trying to complain about why they shouldn't have to do something and she is eating them alive. Um, <laughs> we, used to, we used to do sales meetings on, on uh, Zoom calls. And, uh, you know, so I'm kind of used to doing the Zoom. But, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That we we'd only done one or two before we started this podcast and and it's yeah. been a blessing because you know this was first the idea of the podcast was first floated to us in november um by someone we we greatly respect his opinion he's done way more than we could hope to accomplish and we're like oh you know just the logistics like of all the startup costs and the microphones and how do you get to people and then suddenly everyone was comfortable doing zoom and we're like all right, there we go. Got an idea. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So well, yeah. let's you know, let's us get together with guys like you. We're on the other side of the country, right? That's, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's great. Yep. We're glad your internet started working again, Dustin. Just in time uh, for our sign off. It's, it's important uh, to be there for the start and the end of every meeting. That way, <laughs> everybody thinks you're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Been here the whole time, boss. <laughs> Make sure you say something before you uh, before you check out. But Jim, thank you, thank you for for sitting down with us. Thank you for trusting us. I mean, we talked on the phone just the other day briefly, which I have to thank you for because I was wrestling, um, we, I, trying to take out bamboo that's taking root and doing battle with all of that. So when the phone call rang, I was like, oh God, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be brief because. Because I agreed with you in, in the email where you said, you know, you don't want to talk too much. So I just wanted to basically, you know, be able to say hello, you know, yep. and, and you know, just yep. a brief, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, thank you for trusting us. Um, thank you for telling us your stories. Thank you for your service. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I think what you guys are doing is great. 
man. Thank you. Thank you so much for thinking of me. No problem. Like we like to say to people we meet, we think saying thank you for your service should be the start of the conversation. And too many people think it's the end. Like, oh, I said, thank you for your service. I did my things. Like, no, thank you for your service. Like, tell me about it. I'd love to hear it. That's all that that would make so it much. Was probably fun. 35 years before I heard that. That term. And I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that a you're hearing it and that it's apparently your service is cool enough that people want to pretend to have been there. <laughs> so dustin i'll give you the sign off oh great uh if you're paying attention to us online in some way shape or form uh thank you for being here you've been listening to the know their story podcast if you made it this far we must be doing something right let us know by subscribing to our channel and think about sitting down with the veterans in your life because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation not the end